<laughs> Welcome to Crazy Enough to Win. I'm your host, John Grubbs. Welcome to the podcast. Oh, it's been a while. It's been a bit. For those of you that may not know, I caught COVID-19 about two weeks ago in a business meeting. And fortunately, it was a a mild case, fever for about 24 hours, uh, and then isolation for about 10 days. And regardless of what you hear in the news, in the uh, lamestream media, my doctor, without even telling me, prescribed 10 days of hydrochloroquine. Yes, the disease, the drug they said was so dangerous. Uh, an albuterol inhaler and a round of antibiotics along with a, well, what I would call an industrial grade cough syrup. And I will tell you, for those of you that have not had it, you can definitely feel COVID-19 in your lungs. Uh, but it wasn't a bad sickness at all. I, I would I would equate it to a, a, a very mild case of influenza or a typical cold that is accompanied by an infection. And it was really fascinating how easily I adapted my work to the uh, fact that I was isolated and really doing all of my business from a Surface tablet. And while there were some things that were a little harder to do, I'd, I, I totally get why so many people are able to adapt to work from home. And while I prefer my office and my books and everything that I keep in this space of mine, I do, I do understand that, yes, we can transition if we need to to work from home. Now, today's show is special. We are going to introduce a series of podcasts about, well, two of my favorite books. And these books are, they're just powerful, but they're not well known. People in the mainstream don't necessarily talk about these books. And considering they're, you know, roughly 11 years old, uh, you would think they still might have some legs when it comes to the average, well, intellectual conversation about uh, what people are reading, and what excites people in the world of books and learning. So this series, which will have several uh, episodes, uh, is going to be more about these two books than anything. And I'm going to do it in reverse order, just to keep things interesting and fascinating. I'm going to do these two books in reverse order. So I'm going to start with the sequel and end with the original. And the two books are Freakonomics and Super Freakonomics. And if you've heard of these, you are, well, you would what I would call in the, in the minority. And, and the, the credit to these authors are, well, I think are, are amazing. So the two authors of, of these books, which are New York Times best-selling books, by the way, the two authors are Stephen Levitt. He is a professor of economics at the University of Chicago, 
and the recipient of the John Bates Clark Medal, awarded to the most influential economist under the age of 40. So these books were published 11 years ago, so I don't know if he's under 40 anymore. And then the other author is Stephen J. Dubner, a former writer and editor at the New York Times Magazine and is the author of Turbulent Souls, Choosing My Religion, Confessions of a Hero Worshipper, and the children's book, The Boy with Two Belly Buttons. So this, this book, these, these two books were written by an economist and a writer. And you can learn more about them at www.freakonomics.com. So let's talk about the books. Let's, let's talk about the, the idea behind the books. Well, four years in the making, Super Freakonomics asks not only the tough questions, but the unexpected ones. What's more dangerous, driving drunk or walking drunk? And why is chemotherapy prescribed so often if it's so ineffective? Hmm. And can a sex change boost your salary? Super Freakonomics challenges the way we all think over and over again. And it explores the hidden sides of everything with such questions as, get this, how is a street prostitute like a department store Santa? You've probably always wondered that. I've always wondered, how is a street prostitute like a department store Santa? <laughs> or why are doctors so bad at washing their hands? Inquiring minds want to know. And how much good do car seats do? And what's the best way to catch a terrorist? And did TV cause a rise in crime? That's a great question. And what do hurricanes, heart attacks, and highway deaths have in common? <laughs> and this one you probably always wondered. Are people hardwired for altruism or selfishness? Hmm. And here's a big one. Can a kangaroo save the planet? I've always wondered if a kangaroo could save the planet. And what adds more value, a pimp or a realtor? So in the, in the minds of these authors, they have correlated data on topics that are just amazingly, mind-blowingly interesting. And I remember when I bought the book, I was catching a flight out of Shreveport, Louisiana, and I went in the bookstore, and I was just looking for something to read on the plane, and I found the book Freakonomics, and I said, I don't know anything about this book. I don't know if it's any good, so I bought it, and as soon as the plane took off and I started reading that book, I was consumed by the, just the amazing correlations that they make in these books. And I loved it so much that when I landed, I don't even remember where I was going at this point, but when I landed, I found a bookstore on the other end, and I went and bought Super Freakonomics, the sequel to Freakonomics, and read it on the way back. So I'm guessing I must have had a three- or four-hour flight, uh, probably to the West Coast or the East Coast from northern Louisiana. So let's get into the book, and let's talk about, well, the introduction. 
And these authors, Dubner and Levitt, call it putting the freak in economics. Putting the freak in economics. And I'll read to you some of the book, and then I'll talk about a little bit of it, and I'll kind of you know, give you some anecdotal information as we explore this book together. But I do highly encourage you to buy the book. I'm not going to read the entire book. I'm going to talk about different things in the book, and some things will blow your mind. Uh, great to just take up time if you're working out or if you're in the car or if you're on a plane and you're traveling and you want a podcast to just fill up some time. This series, I think, will be something you enjoy immensely. So, again, putting the freak in economics. Hold on tight. So the authors start with this. Many of life's decisions are hard. What kind of career should you pursue? Does your ailing mother need to be put in a nursing home? You and your spouse already have two kids. Should you try to have a third? Such decisions are hard for a number of reasons. For one, the stakes are high. These are big decisions. And there's also a great deal of uncertainty involved, meaning we don't really know what the outcome of those decisions will be. But of all, above all, these decisions are rare, which means you don't get much practice making them. And you've probably gotten pretty good at buying groceries, since you do it so often, but buying your first house is another thing entirely. Some decisions, meanwhile, are really, really easy. Imagine you've gone to a party at a friend's house and he only lives a mile away. You have a great time, perhaps because you drank four glasses of wine. Now the party is breaking up. And while draining your last glass, you dig out your car keys. Uh-oh. Abruptly, you conclude this is a bad idea. You are in no condition to drive home. So for the past few decades, we've been rigorously educated about the risks of driving under alcohol. A drunk driver is 13 times more likely to cause an accident than a sober one. And yet a lot of people still drive drunk. In the United States, more than 30% of all fatal crashes involve at least one driver who has been drinking. And during the late night hours, when alcohol use is greatest, that proportion rises to nearly 60%. Overall, one in 140 miles is driven drunk. That equates to 21 billion miles each year. So they ask the question, why do so many people get behind the wheel after drinking? Maybe because, and this could be the most sobering statistic yet, drunk drivers are rarely caught. There is just one arrest for every 27,000 miles driven while drunk. That means you could expect to drive all the way across the country and then back and forth three more times, chugging beer all the way, all the while, before you got pulled over. 
As with most bad behaviors, driving drunk could probably be wiped out entirely if a strong enough incentive were instituted. Random roadblocks, for instance, where drunk drivers are executed on the spot, but our society probably doesn't have an appetite for that. Meanwhile, back at your friend's party, you have made what seems to be the easiest decision in history. Instead of driving home, you're going to walk it. After all, it's only a mile. You find your friend, thank him for the party, and tell him the plan. He heartily applauds your good judgment. But should he? Are you making the right decision? We all know that drunk driving is terribly risky. But what about drunk walking? Is that decision so easy? Let's look at some numbers. Each year, more than 1,000 drunk pedestrians die in traffic accidents. They step off the sidewalk into city streets. They lie down to rest on country roads. They make mad dashes across busy highways. Compared with the total number of people killed in alcohol-related traffic accidents each year, about 13,000, the number of drunk pedestrians is relatively small. But when you're choosing whether to walk or to drive, the overall number isn't what counts. Here's the relevant question. On a per-mile basis, it is more dangerous to drive drunk or walk drunk. Which is it? So get this. The average American walks about half a mile per day outside the home or workplace. Hmm. There are some 237 million Americans 16 and older. All told, that's 43 billion miles walked each year by people of driving age. And if we assume that one out of every 140 of those miles are walked drunk, the same proportion that are driven drunk, then 307 million miles are walked drunk each year. (laughs) So doing the math, you find that on a per mile basis, a drunk walker is eight times more likely to get killed than a drunk driver. (laughs) And there's one important caveat. A drunk walker isn't likely to hurt or kill anyone other than her or himself. And that can't be said of a drunk driver. In fatal accidents involving alcohol, 36% of the victims are either passengers pedestrians, or other drivers. (laughs) Still, even after factoring in the deaths of those innocents, walking drunk leads to five times as many deaths per mile as driving drunk. Hmm. So you leave your friend's party. The decision should be clear. Driving is safer than walking. It would even, well, it would even be safer, obviously, to drink less or call a cab. 
So the next time you put away four glasses of wine at a party, or maybe you'll think through your decision a bit differently. Or if you're too far gone, maybe your friend will help sort things out. Because friends don't let friends walk drunk. So, this flavor, these things, these, these anecdotal uh, things that we connect and correlate, this book is going to give you some things that will surprise you, that will entertain you, that will certainly tickle you and make you laugh. So let's continue. If you had the option of being born anywhere in the world today, India might not be the wisest choice. Despite its vaunted progress as a major player in the global economy, the country as a whole remains excruciatingly poor. Life expectancy and literally or literacy rates are low. Pollution and corruption are high. And in the rural areas of India, where more than two-thirds of Indians live, <clears throat> Barely half of households have electricity, and only one in four has a toilet. And it's especially unlucky to be born female, because many Indian parents express a strong son preference. And only 10% of Indian families with two sons want another child whereas nearly 40% of families with two daughters want to try again. So giving birth to a baby boy is like giving birth to a 401k retirement fund. He will grow up to be a wage-earning man who can provide for his parents in their sunset years, and when the time comes, light the funeral pyre. Having a baby girl, meanwhile, means relabeling the retirement fund a dowry fund. And although the dowry system has long been under assault, it's still common for a bride's parents to give the groom or his family cash, cars, or real estate. The bride's family is also expected to pay for the wedding. We do that here in the U.S. And the U.S., Charity Smile Train, which performs cleft repair surgery on poor children born around the world, recently spent some time in Chennai, India, where one local man was asked how many children he had. He answered one. The organization later learned that the man did have a son, but he also had five daughters who apparently didn't warrant a mention. <laughs> Smile Train also learned that midwives in Chennai were sometimes paid $2.50 to smother a baby girl born with a cleft deformity. And so putting the lure of incentives to good use, the charity began offering midwives as much as $10 for each baby girl they took to the hospital for cleft surgery. Girls are so undervalued in India that they are roughly 35 million fewer females than males in the population. And most of these missing women, as the economist Amartya Sen calls them, are presumed dead, either by indirect means 
The girl's parents withheld nutrition or medical care, perhaps to the benefit of a brother. Direct harm. The baby girl was killed after birth, whether by a midwife or a parent, or increasingly a pre-birth decision. Even in India's smallest villages, where electricity may be sporadic and clean water hard to find, a pregnant woman can pay a technician to scan her belly with an ultrasound, and if the fetus is female, have an abortion. In recent years, as these sex-selective abortions have become more common, the male-female ratio in India, as well as in other sun-worshipping countries like China, has grown even more lopsided. A baby Indian girl who does, who does grow into adulthood faces inequality at nearly every turn. She will earn less money than a man, receive worse health care and less education, and perhaps be subjected to daily atrocities. Listen to this. In a National Health Survey, 51% of Indian men said that wife-beating is justified under certain circumstances. More surprisingly, 54% of women agreed. <laughs> and if, for instance, a wife burns dinner or leaves the house without permission, more than 100,000 young Indian women die in fires every year, many of them called bride burning or other instances of domestic abuse. Indian women also run an outsized risk of unwanted pregnancy and sexually transmitted disease, including a high rate of HIV-AIDS. One case in Indian men's con malfunctioned more than 15% of the time. Why such a high fail rate? <laughs> You're not going to believe this. According to the Indian Council of Medical Research, some 60% of Indian men have penises too small for the condoms manufactured to fit the World Health Organization specs. That was the conclusion of a two-year study in which more than 1,000 Indian men had their penises measured and photographed by scientists. The condom, declared one of the researchers, is not optimized for India. Now, folks, you can't make this stuff up. This is real, and you can understand why this, well, why this series is going to be so entertaining for you as a listener. And the government has tried to help by banning dowries and sex-selective abortions, but these laws have been largely ignored. And a number of monetary interventions have also been designed for Indian women. These include uh, Apni Beti, Apnabdan, My Daughter, My Pride, a project that pays rural women not to abort female babies, a vast microcredit industry that makes small business loans to women, and an array of charitable, charitable programs launched by a varietal alphabet soup of international aid agencies. Whew. So the Indian government has also vowed to make smaller condoms more readily available. <laughs> Can't make this stuff up. And unfortunately, most of these projects have proven complicated, costly, and at best, nominally, nominally successful. 
So you're probably thinking, what in the world is in the minds of Stephen Levitt and Stephen Dubner? These guys are truly, truly freaks. But don't miss these episodes. These are great episodes to to really get some perspective. And it's all real and it's all data-driven. It's It's not just something that's corollary. Uh, you've got an economist and a, and a professional writer putting together these interesting things for people to hear. Hmm. So a different sort of intervention, meanwhile, does seem to have helped. This one, like the ultrasound machine, relies on technology. Let technology come to the rescue. But it had little to do with women, per se, and even less to do with baby making. Nor was it administered by the Indian government or some multinational charity. In fact, it wasn't even designed to help anyone at all, and at least not the way normally think we normally think of help. It was just a plain old entrepreneurial development called television. That's right, TV. State-run broadcast TV had been around for decades, but poor perception and a dearth of programming meant simply, well, there wasn't much to watch, and there wasn't much reason to watch. But lately, thanks to a steep fall in the price of equipment and distribution, great swaths of India have been wired for cable and satellite TV. And between 2001 and 2006, get this, some 150 million Indians received cable for the first time. Their, vi- their villages were suddenly crackling with the latest game shows and soap operas, newscasts, and police procedures Well, all beamed from the big cities of India and abroad, TV gave Indian villagers their first good look at the outside world. And not every village got cable TV. And those that did receive it at different times, well, this staggered introduction produced just the kind of data, a lovely natural experiment that economists love to exploit. So the economists in this case were a pair of young Americans, Emily Oster and Robert Jensen. And by measuring the change in different villages based on whether and when each got cable TV, they were able to tease out the effect of TV on Indian women. And by the examined data from a government survey of 2,700 households, most of them rural, Women 50, 15 and older, that's one five and older, were asked about their lifestyles, preferences, and familial relationships. And as it turned out, the women who recently got cable TV were significantly less willing to tolerate wife beating and less likely to admit having a son preference and more likely to exercise personal autonomy. TV somehow seemed to be empowering women in a way that government interventions had not. Who says TV's bad for you? So what caused these changes? Did rural Indian women become more autonomous after seeing cosmopolitan images on the TV? Women who dressed as they pleased handled their own money and were treated as neither property nor baby-making machines? Or did programming simply make the rural woman feel embarrassed to admit to a government surveyor that they were treated so badly. 
So there's good reason to be skeptical of data from personal surveys. There is often a vast gulf between how people say they behave and how they actually behave. In economist speak, these two behaviors are known as declared preferences and revealed preferences. Furthermore, when it costs almost nothing to fib, as in the case of a government survey like this one, a reasonable amount of fibbing is to be expected. The fibs might even be subconscious, with the subject simply saying what he or she expects the surveyor to hear. Hmm, are you enjoying this? I hope you're getting a lot out of this because this is, this is a fascinating journey that we're going on. But when you can measure the revealed preference or the actual behavior, then you're getting somewhere. That's where Oster and Jensen found persuasive evidence of real change. Rural Indian women or families who got cable TV, TV began to have lower birth rates than families without TV. In a country like India, the lower birth rate generally means more autonomy for women and fewer health risks. Families with TV were also more likely to keep their daughters in school, which suggested the girls were seen as more valuable or at least deserving of equal treatment. And the enrollment rate for boys notably did not change. These hard numbers make the self-reporting survey data more believable and it appears that cable TV did really empower the woman or the women of rural India even to the point of no longer tolerating domestic abuse. Or maybe their husbands were just too busy watching cricket. So, as a, as a couple of introductions to this series of podcasts, uh, I think you're going to find out that we're going big. You know, this podcast is called Crazy Enough to Win, and it's about going big with topics that you may not hear everywhere else. And as we explore these books, Freakonomics and Super Freakonomics, I hope you not only talk about what you hear on this podcast, but share the podcast. Share the link with people that, that you know that might find this interesting. If you want to communicate with me directly, you can go to www.johngrubs.com. There's a way to reach out to me that you can send me an email. Um, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on this series and kind of where we're going and what you find interesting uh, because there's a lot more to come. And fresh from the the hibernation that accompanies COVID, I am glad to be back, glad to be back sharing information with all of my listeners around the world. And I hope, I hope that this podcast gives you not only enjoyment, but insights into the world of humanity. Because remember, we're a podcast about going big. We are fighting the infection of ordinary we're fighting the infection of average, and we are, well, we're taking the path less traveled. So subscribe to the podcast so you get notifications. I will try to do at least one a week. Uh, I'll probably end up doing more than one a week. But we are on a path to explore two books, Super Freakonomics, which is the second book, and then Freakonomics will end with the original book because there are great great, uh, well, just bits of information that I think you will find fascinating. So share this podcast. Tell others about this podcast. We will talk to you next time.